Welcome to One Step, a podcast about the small steps in life's journey to healing and transformation. We'll be exploring the arc of change through life's deepest questions and most challenging moments, while also celebrating the small victories and having some fun. Because change doesn't happen overnight, it happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and I've spent the last 10 years learning technical tips on managing money, and now I'm coming to terms with the complex emotional landscape that permeates my entire existence. <laughs> casual, just keeping it real light and casual today. Today, I'm talking to Chelsea Fagan, who is a writer and the founder of The Financial Diet, the leading digital destination for young women to learn and talk about money. The Financial Diet also happens to be one of my favorite places. We'll be covering how your upbringing influences your perspective on money, rich people, why we should be talking about money early and often with our significant others, and why some people need to stop saying, I've worked hard to get here. To be honest, this was an interview that got pretty uncomfortable for me, and you'll hear why. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. I have really been exploring my relationship with money recently, and especially in the last decade of my life, going from 20 years old to just turning 30, I feel like I've learned a lot of valuable lessons. I've learned tangible tips, some of which have come from the financial diet. And now I'm really digging into this emotional landscape. And one thing I've been thinking about a lot is the environment that I was brought up in. And I've thought about how my parents had very different views on money. They were essentially completely opposite views, where my dad viewed money as something necessary for survival, but isn't the most important thing. And my mom had this viewpoint of money will fix anything and everything, like money will be the savior. So those are very like oppositional views. And I'm curious, what was it like for you when you were growing up? Did your parents have totally different ideals around money or were they very much aligned? So, I mean, I was very poor growing up. So I I didn't grow up with a lot of money, but my parents both came from very different backgrounds. My mom did have a lot of money growing up, although her father kind of gained it, lost it, gained it, lost it in real estate. And um, my father grew up very, very poor. But ultimately, I think when you don't grow up with a lot of money, there's really not so much focus on people's perspective around money. It's just kind of like get to the next day, so to speak. Um, So until I was maybe like uh, early adolescence, my only memories about money were really just like making sure we would get to the next day. And obviously, as a kid, a feeling of like, I wish I had these things. My mom is pretty smart with money and did teach a lot of good lessons, mostly about frugality, obviously, given the circumstances. And to their credit, they've definitely gotten themselves out of that situation since and are in a much better financial place. But I think in a lot of ways, having more of a focus on financial education kind of has to inherently come from having enough money that you can do something with it, you know, rather than just survive. I feel like I grew up in a really similar way where so much of my childhood and even into my teen years was just about my family trying to get by and survive. And it wasn't until my 20s that I even remotely started exploring what my relationship was going to be what it currently was at that time. So what was the first step for you when you started having your own views around money and really starting to develop your own relationship with it? Probably the biggest first step that I took toward having, let's say, a more positive or less destructive relationship with money was I I paid off a defaulted credit card that I had gotten when I was 18 and had ruined my credit. I did that around 22. And that was like the first time I'd done anything remotely responsible with my money that wasn't just like entirely about immediate gratification. Um, So that was a huge first step. But I think also uh, around like a I guess I was like 11 or 12, we moved to a town that was very wealthy. I don't know if you've seen the movie Lady Bird. No, I haven't, but I really want to. I, I really like the movie, and a lot of it is centered around her living, um, her being from kind of a lower middle class family um, and being surrounded by very wealthy 
uh, kids. And when you're a teenager, it's just like a knife to the gut. And there are a lot of scenes of her like pretending she lives in a different house and like pretending she has things that she doesn't have and all that stuff. And I felt like, oh, my God, you know, I didn't realize how when I saw that movie, it, it really made me consider how much that really informed my my money decisions was I just remember all through adolescence just being so desperate to have nice things and to kind of hoard them and anytime I had money it was like liquid it ran out of my hands because I just wanted to buy myself nice shit and it really once I took once I paid off that defaulted card and it was the first time I had used what was to me a pretty substantial sum of money to do something that wasn't just about buying myself something I really stepped back from that and I was like, wow, it feels just as good, if not better, to do something positive and long term as it does to just go buy myself, you know, a nice brand name item of clothing that I used to covet. So that was pretty important and definitely made me realize that so much of my money decisions were based on that um, insecurity for sure. And I kind of started to break away from that at that time. I sold my first book at that time. I was 22, but I sold it. I got a $22,000 advance, which was like insane to me at the time. And so it was the first time that I had like real money in my bank account. And I, if I hadn't had gotten that that much money at that one time, I probably would have still put it off. But having uh, a larger sum in my bank account to feel like like I'm not going to, you know, run my bank account down to zero if I paid this off kind of gave me that extra boost. But I also felt like, you know, when I got that money, I was like, get it together, Chelsea. Like, how are you 22, 23 and still dealing with this? You know, I had like a 470 credit score or something. So it was time. (laughs) Did you ever feel like once you got that sum of money that you had just never seen before that there was this feeling of like, oh, my gosh, I need to hold on to this. Like, am I going to lose it or like spend it irresponsibly? Or was it a big relief? It was all of the above. I mean, I still spent a lot of it irresponsibly, to be fair. But uh, I was never, a lot of people who grew up poor, they hoard money. And that's never been my case. Having been exposed to that, I think, did give me that desire to spend frivolously that not all people who grew up poor have. Some do, some don't. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because what I've also noticed as I've gotten older is that people who have a lot of money are often so afraid of losing it, too, especially people who have a lot of money. They have this, like, huge fear around being poor, and I think people who a lot of times may have started in that situation when they were younger and find themselves with a lot of money, they have a fear of, you know, going back to where they were when they were younger. And then people who haven't even had that life experience at all, it almost seems like no matter what upbringing people have, everybody has like their own issues around money and their own feelings about their own anxieties around it. And, um, You know, I think we also live in a culture that tells us it's impolite to talk about money, especially, you know, in casual conversation. And at the same time, you're expected to be responsible Mm -hmm. with your money, too. And I feel like that can be really confusing and also really harmful for people. And I've noticed specifically it really can hold women down when women don't know how to talk about money and feel like they can't. And, you know, you have built a career around talking about money. And I wonder, do you ever feel nervous still to talk about it? Because I know pretty much all of my friends in their own ways have something about money that they are afraid to talk about or afraid to acknowledge hell no (laughs) no I don't feel because I feel I have I I have total transparency you could ask me anything and I would answer um as far as money and I feel like the taboos around talking about money only benefit people who have money um I know what it feels like to be poor and I know what it feels like to uh have money which I do now and I know that life is immeasurably better in so many ways having money. Um, You know, I don't have to worry if I get sick or something breaks or, you know, I have to take time off. Like, there's obviously always going to be problems, but it's like your whole life now has like a little buffer to it. And so you just don't have that same day-to-day anxiety that people do when they don't have money. And I think that what you said about, you know, people who have money are so afraid of 
of of losing it. That's I mean, they should be. It sucks to be poor in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from on some level, they know that it's not fair. They know that it's not fair that they live in a country where they can earn and have and own so much and people around them are afraid to go to the doctor because they don't want to have to file for bankruptcy if they don't have the right insurance or they're too sick. And they know that there's something wrong with that. And I think there's uh, a little bit of a guilt, but also I think the longer you avoid the conversation, the less rightfully angry people will be. I mean, I think a lot of people tend not to realize even just the little things that are so much easier when you have money. I mean, for example, uh, one of the biggest issues in poverty is how easy it is to get sucked into really, really damaging financial situations from small inconveniences. For example, you get a parking ticket, you can't pay the parking ticket, you get the like red flag notices, you get, you know, the ticket compounds. You know, I've had it happen with moving violations when I had no money to pay. What happens when you don't pay your moving violations? They eventually will suspend your license, suspend your tags. I got arrested for having that. Like, and then I ended up having to pay over the course of however long thousands of dollars because I also had to go to court and all that stuff, all because of a $90 ticket that I couldn't pay at the time. And now if someone gave me a $500 ticket, I would break out my credit card. I mean, I'm not saying it's like I'm at the level of wealthy where I don't care about $500, but my life is not that vulnerable anymore. And people who live in poverty are at that razor edge. And so I think avoiding the conversation only further hurts them and only further helps insulate the people who have all of these privileges and don't want to acknowledge them and do live in that fear that one day they could be on the other side of, of that. And I think that's one of our biggest problems in the country. And I hope that you know, in any small way we can, we can help break that down a little bit. How do you think it could be broken down? Uh, People just have to talk about it super honestly. First of all, we need some more class traders. I think one of the, you know, one of the reasons I love, I worked with uh, Hank Green for a long time, um, and I have a ton of respect for him as someone who is, is, he's rich. I mean, not as rich as his brother, but, you know, rich. Speculating there, Hank, but either way, rich enough that he has real power. He can influence things. I mean, not even just politically, but also socially. He employs a lot of people. He lives the life that very few Americans have access to and is one of the few people I've encountered at that level of wealth who is open to really talking about it and talking about the things that a lot of people probably don't even realize about what life means at that at that income level. And I think having more people like that is very helpful. I interview people all the time who are rich. You know, you can use differing definitions, but okay, let's say you earn in the top 1% of earners. That means you're earning around $450,000 a year. I talk to people all the time who earn way more than that and will never say they're rich. They'll say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm comfortable. You know, I, I have more than I, than, you know, I used to, or I have what I need or whatever. Like, no, you need people who are willing to be like, I'm rich. This is what my life is like. It's totally unfair. I only pay, you know, X in taxes and probably pay, you know, an enormous amount less than the average person because so much of their money is not coming in salary. It's coming in capital gains. And it's just if people knew, I think, more about it, they would be angry. And I think we need more people to get them angry. And I think we also need to completely obliterate to whatever extent we can things like shame around poverty, debt, et cetera. Like when I see, you know, people talking about student debt cancellation. You know, I went to a community college. I have no student debt. Like I didn't, I made the right choices to avoid that, but I still think that everyone should have their student debt canceled because what you did at 18 shouldn't, you know, haunt you the rest of your life, especially in an extremely predatory uh, system like private student loans. We can only fight this if we are willing to have the conversation honestly. And I think it has to start with the people who have a lot being willing to talk about it. I read an article about what is happening in San Francisco. And they asked people there, they asked them essentially, do you think that you're middle class? And they also asked them how much money they make. And they were saying that essentially people who are making anywhere from $80,000 all the way up to $450,000 were claiming the position of middle class. And the idea of somebody who's making over $400,000 a year thinking that they are middle class is just such a distorted view into not only like their actual life and their own finances, but also completely distorted in terms of what's happening around them in the city that they're living in, too, where, you know, San Francisco is one of these cities that, I mean, the gap just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this was around the time where there were a handful of tech companies that were getting ready to go public. And they were talking about like the instant millionaires that would come out of that. And 
I was talking to some people afterwards and they were saying that they identified as middle class. And I was like, in my head, excuse me? What? I know how much you make. You're not middle class. Like, absolutely not. You're making like a six figure salary. And I know this. And that's absolutely not middle class. And so it made me realize how many people think that and how many people have this distorted view around what their experience is and also this idea of scarcity too. Like what I have is not enough. I'm basically lower middle class and it's just like, what are you talking about? No. Uh, did you see it went viral? Literally anytime anything in the personal finance space goes viral, it's just because the whole internet is like dunking on it because it's so out of touch. But there was one where they were profiling a couple in New York who had a combined income. I think it was like 510 or something a year. And they were living paycheck to paycheck, essentially, and it broke down their spending. So you could see, you know, exactly where it all goes. And it was like very much what you would imagine in the sense of like they have, you know, I don't know how much it was a month, but like probably like a $10,000 mortgage. You know, their kids are both in private school. They both have tutors. You know, they have a bunch of cars in New York and all this stuff. I think there's two things, right? One, these people are almost certainly only surrounded by people in their income bracket or pretty close to it. So they're able to normalize all of these things. Mm -hmm. They're able to consider them needs. They're like, oh, I need to put my kid in this school. I need to have this car, you know, whatever. So everyone around you is only confirming that and probably has a little bit more than you do, it's always going to seem, you know, justifiable. But then the other thing is, and this is a very real psychological phenomenon, is you have what's called lifestyle inflation. What was unthinkable to you five years ago with the right amount of money now becomes so normalized that if you don't have it, you're angry about it. You feel cheated somehow. Like, you know, you can go from living in a studio apartment, which at the time seems amazing, all the way up to, you know, a 2,000 square foot apartment in Manhattan and feel like it's still not big enough because you've just sort of accustomed yourself to a higher threshold hold of satisfaction, essentially. And it's really, really tough to combat that. You know, I travel a lot for work and I always try to like make it a point no matter where I'm staying to like take 30 minutes to like walk around my hotel room and like play with things and like notice it and feel excited and feel like, oh my God, how cool is it that I get to fly on a plane and go to someplace for work? You know, even if you're sitting in the middle seat and coach, whatever, like who cares? It's a luxury that only a fraction of people in the world will ever experience. Um, and if you don't take time to do that in your life, it's very easy to all of a sudden be like, ugh, you know, I have a view overlooking a parking lot in this beautiful hotel or whatever you can easily um, focus on. Um, but most people don't do that and I don't even do it enough. But when you don't do that for a sustained period of time and the only people around you are people who have equal or better, pretty soon you're going to feel like you're living on a razor's edge with half a million dollars of income you know it's it's it would be shocking if they didn't feel that way yeah and I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about the difference between our generation and our parents generation and how our parents generation was more focused on the money that they would burn so essentially like the money that was being spent and our generation is more focused on how much money we're making but not necessarily how we're spending it and the person on this podcast was talking about how their dad never made like millions of dollars a year not even a six-figure salary when he was working but he has so much savings and he was able to save over the course of his working life and has a really comfortable retirement and is able to relax and just live the his life the way that he wants to live it now and I think you know over the course of his life he made like sixty thousand dollars a year something like that and was able to invest and now he has a great retirement and in comparison to that you know this generation where people are making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or more and they feel like they're just scraping by and I thought that was really interesting that focus on like how much you're spending versus how much you're making because I do think those are different things to be focusing on. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see. So, like, one thing that's pretty true across generations is, like, when it comes to uh, retirement plans, millennials are, are really screwed. It used to be very common for employers to heavily subsidize, if not outright pay, for their employees' retirements. Of all the friends I have who have, you know, pretty good jobs, one out of, like, I don't know, I know 100 people probably enough to know their jobs, one has a pension, whereas very low income, no higher education 
required jobs used to offer pension programs. And even further, I know I would say only half the people I know who have corporate jobs have 401ks and of those only a fraction of them have, you know, employer matches and things like that. And you would also want to look at this person from a previous generation who only earned $60,000 a year. How much student debt was he carrying? Probably none, statistically speaking, or very little. You know, the average millennial has about 40 grand just under of student debt. And that makes a huge difference in terms of what you're able to save. But I do think a bigger issue is probably that on the macro scale, millennials are less able to save because they have very little access to subsidized retirement. They're underemployed. They're underpaid for their education level. They're carrying a lot of debt. But even amongst the people who could be saving more, and there are a lot of those, and we try to speak to them. I think a lot of it comes from this nihilistic worldview of like, we're screwed. You know, when you have so many people living with a mortgage's worth of debt at age 21, how realistic is that person ever going to be about being able to dig themselves out of it and build something really sustainable? You know, you need, Mm -hmm. depending on how you live, you need millions of dollars to retire comfortably. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're living longer and longer. If you're looking at a 30-year retirement, I mean, do the math, right? Especially when you think about women, too, and how women earn less. And if you're a woman of color, take it down a few notches and women live longer. So it's just like, well, what are we going to (laughs) do? Cool. Yeah. And and it's true. And I I think it's hard not to get into a nihilistic worldview about it. And don't get me wrong, like some people are doing it right. And some people are making the best of their circumstances. And some people could be doing better for sure. But I do think it's the whole idea that we're going to improve our situation by everyone just making better choices, I think is very naive. There are certain things that are going to have to change. You know, the level of student debt that the average young person is in at graduation has to change because it's not just affecting their lives. Mm -hmm. It's affecting the entire economy, their ability to buy homes or participate in the consumer market or just live normal adult lives or have children. These things have bigger consequences than just your individual choices. Yeah, and I think unpacking the shame too is really hard and I feel like I'm definitely on that path, you know, going from growing up in a family that just wasn't traditional in so many different ways where I come from a mixed race background. My dad was also significantly older than all of the other dads and moms that I was around. Um, He had me later in life. My mom came from another country and had an entirely different upbringing than my dad. My dad grew up during the Great Depression, but you know, he had very different views on money from my mom and she grew up in a completely different country where so often women were not the breadwinners. And um, then, you know, in my household, my mom was the main breadwinner because my dad was older and like semi-retired at that point. And he was the one who was like staying at home and taking me to school. And so my life was just very untraditional in a lot of ways. And I just remember, especially with my mom getting really sick and my dad dying when I was a teenager, there were just so many moments where I was so aware of we are just scraping by, like just barely. And I never thought that I would ever have any kind of financial security. And I also went through periods where I was so irresponsible with how I spent money because it was like what you were saying. I just I just had the money and wanted like nice things. And I think for me too, it was a way of like numbing out as well. And now I'm in a position where I have more money than I could have ever imagined when I was like, I don't even think that I could imagine this when I was younger in so many ways, like the position that I'm in just didn't exist. I was never looking up to like a mixed race woman who had a lot of money, who was, you know, in a creative field and like had financial security. And that's a lot to unpack for me. And I'm very much like still in this process of figuring out what all of this means to me on a deeper level, how I want to be living my life and spending my money in a way that gives back to the world and isn't just entirely focused on myself, but is reaching out to other people. But the shame is really, really hard to navigate. And I've noticed specifically that a lot of other women I know have very specific shame around their money relationships. And I was wondering if with women in general, you noticed if there was like 
one common thread of shame that you noticed with women? Are they afraid to talk about how much money they make or like are they afraid to make a lot of money? I mean, statistically speaking, most women are in heterosexual relationships, right? So they're in a relationship where typically they're with a man and statistically speaking, that man was given more financial education than she was. Typically speaking, that man was raised to assume that he would be the breadwinner and that he would handle the money. And even, and they've done studies where even amongst parents who have children of multiple genders, even when they say they don't, they raise them differently around money. Um, So a lot of women, I think, hold most of their shame around their relationships and eventually marriage, kids, et cetera. Because in many cases, there's a social pressure to conform to a very outdated idea of how a couple handles money, which is that the man earns more, he makes the long-term decisions. I don't have the stat on, on me, but there's this like unbelievable stat. It was something like over half of women don't manage their long-term finances until uh, divorce or death of a spouse which is crazy when you consider how much women earn now that most of them are in the workforce, that they have their own money when they enter marriages because they're marrying later, all that stuff. But there's these really, really bad, outdated gender norms that still, I think, infect relationships and infect women. And when you think about the fact that (laughs) on a large enough scale, about 50% of marriages are going to end in divorce, the idea that you would allow this shame to not uh, let you take control of your security and your future is crazy to me, but it makes sense in the context of is that going to make your husband feel like less of a man or less of a provider if he's not the one managing these decisions and he's not the one earning more. So I think there's a lot of weird feelings around that. And then when you combine that with how much harder childbearing hits women in in terms of their earning than it does men, you know, men on average will earn more if they have kids because they're taken more seriously. They're seen as a father, et cetera, where women will earn less. And it's just assumed that they're going to take the primary burden of child rearing and they're looked at kind of askew in the workplace if they're if they're too focused on their kids. I'm glad you said burden, by the way, oh, and not <laughs> joy of child rearing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, in terms of the yeah. work that it takes. Yeah. Um, we, I, we had a conversation about motherhood, and it's very much on par with you know, it's work. It's, it's work. serious work. And it's time more than anything yeah. else. It's time that has to be dedicated to it. So at every level, when women from childhood, when it comes to how they're raised and how they're educated, all the way up to when they're having their own children, at every turn, women are discouraged from really taking their financial lives in their hands or even really understanding them. And although I would say that more and more men are getting over this. I would say there's still an enormous amount of men who feel that their masculinity is tied up in their finances, which only makes that much, much worse for couples that don't exactly fit the mold. So I would say it it typically, at least from what we see, our audience is primarily women. I would say a lot of it comes from that. But if nothing else, I mean, even if, you know, you're single or you're not in, in a, a, you know, a hetero relationship, you're statistically probably living with a really paltry financial education as a woman. That is hard to escape. Obviously, it's compounded when you enter all those other situations, but it's it's rare to find a woman who was raised with a really competent financial education from her family. So yeah, we're kind of starting with a lot of uh, obstacles against us from the get-go, for sure. Yeah, and from the divorce rates that I have seen, the statistics, it's like 21 or 22% of um, divorces happen because of some kind of conflict over money. And I think that, you know, that's a very real issue, but money also comes into play in platonic relationships and with family too. Have you ever had a relationship, whether it's romantic or platonic, where you had conflicting views and you had to figure out, okay, how do we navigate it? I I mean, I'm married um, and a huge part of what I think we dated for a long time before we got married and one of the biggest things that I think allowed us allowed me to be extremely sure I can't speak for him but um, that made me very sure about it was that there was no judgment or you know we definitely differ on money but it was very unconditional in that respect because I've had other relationships where there were some conditions around money for sure and money was used as a tool to have leverage uh, you know when I was younger I dated a much older person and he wasn't a bad person but when I look at the power dynamics of that relationship you know I was a community college student and a barista and a nanny and he was a fairly high earning adult man you know and when I look back at the kind of 
upper hand that that gives you, I think, you know, more than anything else, because I know a lot of people look a little sideways at huge age gaps in relationships. And I think that's not always fair, but one area that it usually bears out is is in the income differential. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think without even trying to, you can have a pretty unhealthy relationship as a result of that. I've also had friendships that I wouldn't say have ended, but I've definitely ratcheted down because I don't like the way, I, I, I think their view on money is a little toxic. And, you know, especially when it comes to people of financial privilege, I don't personally like or identify with it when a person of financial privilege believes sincerely that they have that because they work harder than other people. I think that's mm. actually the opposite of true in most cases. Um, like it's it's almost well, it's insulting. It's also it's extremely insulting and condescending. But also, like even if you just look at the numbers, it's almost certain that like the person cleaning the office is working harder than the person in, you know, an executive office. But I also just think that's just like an incredibly toxic way to view the world. But when you, as you move through the world, and if you do have the privilege of earning more money, you're going to meet a lot of people like that and hear the way they talk when they don't think anyone else or anyone, you know, lower than them is listening to them. But it's, you have to pick your battles, right? You can't call it out, but I'll just definitely ratchet down those relationships when I see that attitude, including with family members. You know, I have some family members that I'm not going to like disown them, but I also am not going to seek them out for sure because I can't stand that worldview. And I think it's really, really harmful. All the more so when I know from their side of it, what that really entails. You really truly believe that the person who cleans your house is only in that position because they're not as smart or they're not as hardworking. And that is something that I have a way lower tolerance for now. Yeah. I mean, I think so many people have that view and they think that that person is lacking something and that is why they're in that position. And it's also just like the thing about privilege is it's not so much I mean, I think there's an element about like how you got there, but for some people they were born into it. It's really about what you do with it. And I think that is the thing that is fully within your control. And that is the thing that people need to be thinking about more is like, what are you going to do with it? I don't want to hear about, well, it's not your fault that you're like in this situation, like you were born into it. Okay. But like you're here now what? And also something that really stuck with me with what you were saying is how money can be used to control in so many ways. And I think we see that not only in interpersonal relationships, but also like in our government, in our culture, like how we treat other people that are just around us, how we're viewing other people who are doing manual labor and we are viewing them in this certain way of, oh, you're lesser than because you're doing this kind of work and I am like in this different class. And it can be used to control people and keep them in those positions. I know that I've been in a similar dating position where I was dating someone who made more money than me when I was younger. He definitely used it to control me and keep me small. And it was really, really scary. And I think coming out of that relationship, that's when I started to realize, oh my gosh, I can see how money has been weaponized against me, especially when I was in a position where I really didn't have anything myself financially and I could see how much control and power that other person had over me and it was absolutely terrifying. And it also exists a lot in the workplace. You know, we uh, at TFD, we have, you know, a team, we have employees, we have with that, I think, an enormous amount of responsibility. And we, especially in a in an industry as exploitative as media, quite frankly, you know, I, I, I think a lot of those experiences led myself and my partners early on to say, okay, we won't have any unpaid interns. Like there's multiple employees in my company who earn more than I do. Like we are very much about making sure that we are not, even without realizing it, slipping into the dynamic of exploiting control over people, which I think is just as common in professional situations as it is in in personal ones. I understand on like a completely opportunist level why a lot of employers in an industry who can get away with exploiting people financially do it. I understand like the short-term advantages of it, but I do think that when you look at it on the long term, there's such a fragility to those relationships, whether it's someone personal or someone professional. It's essentially, it's almost as if you've like built a house on quicksand in a way, because you can force someone to respect you or you can force someone to be controlled if you have the financial upper hand. And that will work for a time. But as soon as there is another or a better financial opportunity, 
there is no loyalty there. There's no real earned sense of respect. There's no reciprocity. You've sort of created a, almost like a, a little bit of like an indentured servant, essentially, when you keep people in a financially exploited position. And it's most literal when you look at it in in the workplace. And, you know, again, in this industry in particular, you don't have to look far to see people who are, are in those kind of situations and, you know, get them two minutes behind a closed door and they can't stand their situation, even if they deal with it in the short term. But in relationships, we, we forget, I think, often that there are many relationships where there is only one person earning the money. Um, and that money is very much a tool of control and a tool of uh, enforcing respect and enforcing loyalty. Um, and, you know, when, when, we, when you look at things like uh, abusive situations, you know, one of the most frequently cited reasons for not leaving is simple lack of access financially. No matter the, rela- the nature of the relationship, if you have a financial upper hand, if you do not go out of your way to correct for that and to not exploit it, and to not allow it to be leverage, it almost by default will become that way. And when I started the company for the first two years, I took no money, which meant that for those two years, my husband was the sole breadwinner of our home. And looking back, there was not a single time during those two years that I ever once felt guilty or ashamed or like I didn't deserve to do this or that. And he was always very encouraging, like, this is an investment in your future. This is I'm part of this, you know, whatever, like we're in this together, et cetera, et cetera. I I think looking back on that, that that is I hope to be able to always behave that way with other people because it would have been so easy and on some level maybe even justified for him to have made me feel badly or ashamed or like I needed to ask him permission, essentially, in order to use our mutual funds. So all of that to say, I think that control that you referenced in in a relationship, quite frankly, it's probably very possible that that person wasn't even trying to and didn't think that they were. Um, Not saying that that's the case, but I think that it's very common for people who have that financial upper hand without even realizing it to control the other person. Well, I think in that case, he definitely knew what he was doing because it was an (laughs) abusive relationship. So sorry to hear that. No, but but, I mean, I think it's important to be honest about that because for so long I was afraid of just even speaking those words out loud um, and acknowledging that position that I was in because it really felt like a position of powerlessness. Totally. Um, And I was just so, I felt so vulnerable. And I think to really acknowledge that is is painful and scary. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think about the relationship that I'm in now with my girlfriend, which is just so completely different. Um, And from the beginning, we have been so upfront and honest about money. And I think that is probably one of the biggest things that makes this relationship so different and also so successful because we are so quick to talk about money whenever something comes up if we're going on a trip if we're renting a car if we're doing whatever we are always very clear about what our expectations are Mm. of ourselves and the other person you know is it a trip that I'm paying for because I want to do this for her as a gift or is it something that I'm expecting we split you know conversations like that were really difficult for me in the past we're also really open about our budgets and like what we're willing to spend what we're not willing to spend and I think it's made all the difference in this relationship to have that open flow of communication but I know for a lot of people because we are raised in this culture where a lot of us we feel like it's impolite to go there. I know so many people get married without even talking about money or knowing what the other person's financial situation is. And I can't even imagine that because my girlfriend and I like know so much about the other person's finances and also what our future goals are. And so how do you advise people to start that conversation? Because I know for so many people, it feels scary, especially if a relationship is new. Well, actually, I'm kind of curious um, for you because because I think there's, well, first of all, I think there's not any one blueprint, right? But something that we hear about all the time at TFD is we are always getting requests to speak more specifically about LGBT couples navigating money together. Because on the one hand, you don't have like the extremely toxic blueprint of, you know, relationships in which the man is assumed to be in control of these things mm-hmm. and his masculinity is tied up with his his finances. Um, but on the other hand, there isn't a blueprint period in terms of how these relationships are expected to be navigated. 
So, you know, for me, I feel like my default advice in a lot of these situations is to try to go out of your way to combat those really toxic gender roles, especially to women. Uh, But I'd be curious to know from you, you know, having been in both situations, how you have found it has been easier, more difficult, or just different, uh, and how so to to navigate the, the financial question with a partner of the same gender? I think in a lot of ways, it has been easier because those gender roles aren't there. I think the way that it can kind of sneak in is Erica is more masculine in her presentation. So I think like the outside world can have this expectation of her taking on like the man in the relationship whatever that means. You know, sometimes I can even catch myself like having that quick expectation of like, oh, that's what's happening. And I'm like, wait a second. No, that's not what is happening. And I think also because, you know, she was in her third, she was 32, 33 when we met. I was like 28. We had both had some experience with money, past relationships that didn't go well, some of which because of finances. And I think because even though we were in on different career paths, we had experienced different th- similar things as women and queer women um, in our respective industries. And so I think it made us like at that point in our lives, kind of really eager to have somebody that was willing to have that conversation. And so I remember, I don't even think we had really been dating that long. And we just immediately started talking about money. And at first it was like a little bit like, are we really going here? And I was like, yes, I want to go here (laughs) because this has been an issue in the past and I don't want to repeat this pattern. And I think the way that it has been difficult is really the outside expectation. So when we're out, a lot of times Erica will get the check. And most of the time we split things. And people make these assumptions automatically. Like if we go to rent a car, they automatically give her the paperwork and the bill. And that is really weird to just watch that happen. And I can often just be erased from any kind of financial or logistical conversations. It's like the person doesn't even look at me at all and they're only addressing her. And so feeling invisible in those situations does feel hard. It does hurt. And, you know, I have to a lot of times like choose to step into those places. Isn't that crazy how like plugged into the gender matrix we are? Yeah. That, like even if it's a woman, if she just like has a few more masculine cues, we're like, ah, you get all the money stuff, which is like on some level, what does that even have to do with being a man? You know, it's yeah. like, but it goes past even defaulting to men. It's like, I guess the like person with shorter hair will now <laughs> be taking the check. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is unbelievable when you actually think about it. But I will say, I do think regardless of, you know, the breakdown of your relationship, I think a, a universal truth as far as, well, first of all, talk about money early and often for sure. You have to. I I mean, maybe not on the first date, but like first couple of dates, I think you can start asking, you know, more broad, less offensive questions. But I think the like the ultimate litmus test for me and I think um, can work in most relationships, including platonic ones or family ones, is that you should feel accountable, but never judged. You know, and I think that is a big, big difference because when I met my now husband, I was a very different person uh, in terms of just the raw age. People are different at 22 than 30. But also like for me in particular, especially when it came to money, I had a very different relationship and very bad relationship to it. So in a lot of ways, the fact that he was always so good with money made me want to be better myself. And he definitely held me to account on a lot of different things and, and made me a better person in the process for sure. But at no point did I feel ashamed or embarrassed or judged. If anything, I I felt if I ever felt a sense of embarrassment, it was me being embarrassed with myself because like you're better than this. And now you look like such an ass in front of your, you know, then boyfriend again because you wasted that paycheck or whatever. Um, But it was never him making me feel that way. And I've definitely been in relationships where it's the, the opposite, where it's much more about judging and shaming the person into improving their behavior. But that, I think, is a big litmus test. And also, I mean, I don't think people from two different socioeconomic backgrounds can't overcome it. They can. Like, it's not like the 
1500s or whatever, like you can, but I do think it is much harder than people give credit for, not because of what, you know, that entails as far as your access and your experience, but much more because of what it demands of the person who grew up with more to overcome and be aware of. And I think, you know, especially when you were the person, if you grew up with a lot of money, you have to redefine everything, all of your ideas of normal, all of your ideas of, you know, experiences, all of your ideas of what you even think makes a person who they are. One of the biggest pet peeves I have in that regard is people who treat travel as some kind of character building activity or something that makes you a better person. You know, and then people are like, oh, if you've only ever been to one country, you've only read one, you know, book of a page or whatever. It's like 30% of Americans have a passport. 30%. Most people in this country can't leave the country. And you cannot tell me that those people are less or that they have a less defined character or, or know less about the world. They just have a different view of the world than you do. And more importantly, there are plenty of assholes with a passport, you know, mm-hmm. who fly first class all in a or private four, or private, which is like, oh, Ugh, I know. <laughs> and they've been to, you know, 60 countries. And you cannot tell me that that person's a better person. But a lot of people don't even realize what they're saying when they imply that international travel is a character building activity. And so if you are someone who grew up with a lot of money, it is very likely that you will have many of these ingrained beliefs about what makes a person who they are that are entirely about money that you have to like flush out of your system. And I think very few people are really capable of doing that. So if you are going to be with someone who's from a radically different background from you, I think you just have to be very aware that it's not just about the money. It's about everything. It's about the way you view the world. Yeah, totally. I mean, even... Erica, you know, she didn't grow up super rich. She grew up in a very middle class family in Indiana. And there are even huge differences between the way I grew up and she grew up and like her world lens and my world lens. And we've had a lot of conversations about it. And I think because we've been able to be really honest about that and also I've been able to like see into her upbringing and she's been able to see into mine we've both been able to adjust and I think there are a lot of adjustments that have to be made and there have been times where I've been just really like angry because I just think that something that she is like worrying about is like so unnecessary or just so but but what do you mean like this why are you worrying about this like I don't understand but I think because we've been willing to have those conversations with each other it's allowed us to get to know each other better and on a really deep important level too totally for me becoming intimate with someone financially in a in a real way not just in terms of combining your finances but really combining those worldviews and understanding them is one of the most profound kinds of intimacy you can have with people but it takes a lot of both parties to to be totally honest about that honestly even if you're a guy who's been raised with like a raw diet of toxic masculinity and you were raised to believe that it was like your job to be the breadwinner your job to earn more money your job to make the decisions I still think it's possible for someone to overcome that but what it demands of that man is the ability to articulate his feelings and say I feel really uncomfortable that you earn more money than me which a lot of people do not have the toolbox the emotional toolbox to say or like to just truly articulate or if even if a feeling is envy this is common between friends Mm -hmm. envy or insecurity if you are not able to articulate that it's going to be really noxious to any relationship and I've had I, I have some good friends where we have been at very different ends of the financial spectrum at different times throughout our friendships. And one of the strangest things about that particular kind of situation is that in my case, I've been I've I have friends where in the early stages of our relationship they earned or had access to enormous amounts more money than I did. Almost like so wealthy that it didn't even matter compared to me. And now through life situations and all that stuff, we're now more equal I wouldn't necessarily say I have, I'm more financially privileged, but definitely on more equal footing. In this particular case, you know, that friend has said to me, sometimes it's really weird because I always kind of looked at you 
almost like a little sister in a way. And a lot of that was because I had so much more money and I could take care of things. And, you know, sometimes it makes me feel like lost and uncomfortable when, you know, you'll pay for things or like I can't do things that you suggest or whatever. And at the time, I just I didn't even really kind of register it. But now looking back, I'm like the balls, the balls that it takes to say that to someone, you know, especially if you're older, especially if you have come from money, you know, and I do think that it's totally possible for everyone to overcome those feelings. You just have to be super articulate and about them and super lucid about what you're actually feeling. Yeah. And willing to be uncomfortable totally. too, because I think that there's this idea of like a successful relationship is not going to have major conflict. And I feel like the most successful relationships at some point have some kind of conflict that you are really choosing to enter into and both of you are being exceptionally honest and vulnerable with each other and you're really listening and hearing the other person and you're willing to make adjustments where they're needed or you're not willing to make adjustments and maybe that relationship comes apart. But I think that that is definitely something I've learned and this is really the first relationship that I have been in where I am like, I can say anything. Like I can be angry. I can be frustrated. I can be upset with Erica's view on something. And I'm not afraid of her being like, well, I'm out. I'm out just because you're angry or upset and you don't agree with me 100%. She always steps up and is like, okay, I want to listen. And I do the same thing for her. And I think that that is such a huge part of why our relationship is so successful totally. and I think it's funny mm. to say like our relationship is so successful because of the arguments we have but I really feel that way I, well first of all sounds like a keeper <laughs> yeah she is um but one of my things that I'm still like more let's say affected by or petty about than I would like to be is like obviously I've lived in New York for five years and when I moved to New York I mean I had a job but I definitely didn't have as much money as I have now and so I was definitely more sensitive to this but there's a lot of people in New York who they're like my age and they're still getting help from their parents, um, which is something that I just never encountered before and is especially prevalent in industries like this where people are often pretty underpaid. And I have friends who that is their case and they're super upfront about it. They'll talk about it openly. They understand what that means and they're, they own it kind of. But I also know people who don't and are very coy about it and are very, they'll avoid the topic because they know like it doesn't take a financial genius to be like, I know where you work. I know roughly what you earn. I know where you live. I know how you live. It's not adding up, you yeah. know, and that to me is like the one thing that I still have a really hard time with. And I do think on some level it's because I didn't grow up with a lot and my parents, even if they had the money, they never would have like I would not have been 30 years old with my parents paying, you know, $1,400 a month toward my rent so I could live in a doorman building. Like I just cannot relate to that. That would never happen. But more than that, I think it's that to me when you are dishonest about your financial privilege or you're dishonest about what allowed you to get to where you are, what allows you to live the life you do, I consider that on some level a form of gaslighting people because you know how you're choosing to portray yourself. And if you're choosing to portray yourself as an independent person who's just working hard and, and has these things through the grace of your own work, you know that all the people around you who are at the same office even will be like, what am I doing wrong? That I do not have access to these same things. And so to me, that lack of honesty that a lot of people have, that lack of ability, or like when people start a company and they'll have a narrative, like the only reason our company was able to get off the ground was because I could afford to take $0 as a salary for two years. Period. And that's because my husband had a good job. Period. And also insurance, obviously. But like I would not – like TFD would not have gotten off the ground with that. For most people – for a lot of people anyway, it's either savings, family, m money, or a spouse. Like those are the three options really. Like you – otherwise, you know, you don't, you don't earn money at the beginning or very little. But when people are not honest about that and when you'll see people giving interviews about how they got where they are, they will very often go out of their way to avoid the parts of the story that aren't flattering to them, mm -hmm. whether that's about starting a business or just how you live. And again, in New York, it's very common. And that to me – I have a very hard time with and it's very hard for me not to feel like actively angry.
angry about it, especially when it's people who have a big platform. Like there are multiple very influential lifestyle bloggers, for example, who consistently will leave it out of their narrative that their husbands are hedge fund managers worth millions and millions of dollars, including some that are very heavily involved in the industries that these women themselves work in. I see that and I feel like it's hard for me not to feel like bitterly angry about it. And because to me at this point, I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't affect me. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. But I look at the people who are looking at these people, whether it's the person next to you in your office or the, per- the woman on your Instagram who seems miraculously, you know, adept at her job. You're intentionally leaving out a part of the story that is effectively gaslighting the people around you into thinking that there's something wrong with them or there's something that they're not doing right. That is something that I still very much struggle with in terms of how to let that anger go. And honestly, maybe the answer isn't let it go. Maybe it's just like continue to be super, you know, honest about it to hopefully shame other people into doing the same. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think that the more we can all get more honest about our relationships with money, the better off we are. And it doesn't mean that we all need to like go on Twitter and start like, you know, sharing every single thing about our financial history. But I think What matters is that we're honest about it in the moments that matter, in the time, in the interviews that matter, in the relationships that matter, in those moments that are really significant where it is detrimental if you leave that information out. And I think that is something that I am like starting to come to terms with more, especially as I've seen women that I really admire get more honest about what they're making. And it's always the women of color who are the first ones who are willing to be more honest. And the more I see these women like really putting it out there, the more it's forced me to acknowledge, okay, how have I reached this point what is my relationship been like how has it changed like as scary and as uncomfortable as it can be it's made me feel better about what I'm doing and where I'm going and how I'm choosing to wield the privilege that I have been given at this point in my life we uh we did an interview last year with Anna Akana who's a YouTuber and I had never met her before and it was just so funny because from the minute she walked in the door to the interview she was just like everything was an open book Mm -hmm. and when we were talking about money you know I interview people a lot about money and I asked them beforehand are you comfortable with sharing numbers some people are some people aren't and I'm not here to like force like not here to out people about their about their numbers but before we started the interview Anna was like yeah I'm okay with like a ballpark totally and so I get to the question where I'm like well so what uh, roughly you know were you making last year and she was like "Uh, so last year I took in 1.1 million but then blah 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 and she broke down where that went I was like I don't think the word ballpark means the same Yeah, (laughs) that's like an exact number, which I was so thrilled about. And it made the video so awesome. And I was so excited that she did that. But I realized for every person like Anna, there's going to be 10 who are not at that place yet. But something that I would say, and I'm sure if she were here, she'd probably say the same thing is like, there's nothing more liberating than being totally honest about it. Nothing. And especially when you consider all the people watching you who are in a place where they, they don't get the full picture. And in fact, not knowing will often lead them to have if nothing else, a different and potentially very misguided opinion of you. You know, when Anna broke down what she takes in versus then what she puts out, she says, some person might find the 1.1 number and make all kinds of assumptions about me that aren't true. But when you break down what I'm doing with that money, she reinvests, I think, like $400,000 of it every year into her company, whatever. But it paints a picture of herself and paints a picture of her relationship to money that is totally her narrative and defined by her. Mm -hmm. And the only things that I won't share are things that, quite frankly, will damage my ability to negotiate with partners, for example. You know, I I won't say, you know, what uh, X partner pays for for Y product. And I always discourage people, especially women, because it's women who tend to do this in the the creative space. I always discourage them from putting out a rate card because all that does is screw you over on the very common instance that someone was coming along willing to pay more. Mm. Um, So that I won't share only for for purely opportunistic reasons. But the rest of it, it's to me preferable to share because that way there is a much, much clearer picture of what these numbers mean. You can provide context to them. Um, And in the off chance that something is ever revealed about you or uh, a number becomes public or or what have you, you get to have total control over that, which I think is very beneficial. You know, I watched an interview with Phil DeFranco recently, who I don't really watch his show very occasionally, but I do know obviously that he's made 
made a, a real business of of his work on YouTube. And there was a big scandal, I guess. I don't really follow it. But there, apparently there was some kind of scandal with people feeling frustrated with him that he had a Patreon when he also monetizes all of his shows through ads and all that kind of stuff. People are like, why do you need this? And then he went on and he broke down like, okay, so our company takes in this amount of money, but I have, you know, these many employees. I have this much office space. By the time it gets down to me, you know, this is what that number looks like. And I thought that was really so important and so many more creators should be doing it because in many ways it's 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 not only informative and helpful for your for your audience but it's also very liberating for yourself. And so I'm I'm all for people getting more and more honest about that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you know, I think when you own that narrative, you're owning such a huge part of your overall story totally. too. So you have been on quite a journey yourself. <laughs> if you had to pick one thing that you are especially proud of, what is it? You know, this year I've been like working with – so I run TFD. I have a partner, um, and she <clears throat> handles a lot of the the business stuff, the, the revenue mostly. But up until recently, she's been also taking a – and as of, I don't know, maybe like six months ago as we started to scale up a little bit, she kind of sat me down and she was like – you know, I know that obviously your role with this company is very unusual because you are, you know, physically a part of a lot of the product, but like I need more help on financial stuff. And at first I was like very reticent. Like I was always very reticent because I'm terrible at math. I'm not like particularly, I don't think that way. More importantly, I think I was just like, I didn't want to challenge myself to do it. And um, we like, we were on a trip and we took like a couple days to just like sit down and go through everything and like learn how to you know, manage our budgets and and plan out and do projections and work with ADP and work with health insurance companies and do all these things that really kind of make a business turn. And I'm definitely not an expert at them at those things yet, but it's a part of my work life now that I actually kind of enjoy. So that's been exciting. And I actually kind of like doing budgets now. Wow, look at that. I've always had a personal budget, but like doing a budget for a business is yeah. a lot more complicated and it's not it's not always fun, but I, I it's very satisfying, I find. What about you? I want to know yours. Oh, I think um, I think for me, it's really coming to terms with my own story. Just not even like just the overall, but my own story around money. And um, really getting to a place now where I feel like I'm owning my narrative more than I ever have before, where as in the past, you know, in the points where I didn't have money and then I started making money in all of those places, I just I didn't want it. Like I didn't want the label of not having money and then I didn't want the label of having money and I just didn't want to associate with it. Um, and now I do feel a sense of responsibility being in this space, especially seeing it change so much and seeing how much despair people are in and how much people are just really, you know, struggling and looking at people and not understanding the full picture. And while I'm not in control of that, I am in control of what I make and what I share. Right. And I feel like I've really started to like step into that more. And that's something that I'm really proud of, especially looking 10 years in the past and just seeing a really scared, totally different person. And now someone who is like wanting to own my full story. I feel like it's not a coincidence that we're sitting here today having this conversation. Totally. I Yeah. And I think you're, you know, the more you have that conversation, the more you're in a position to really to, to help a lot of other people, especially in the YouTube space where there's a lot of money to be made. But often that money is not really making its way to the hands of the people who are doing the work. You know, we talk to people all the time who are in incredibly exploitative situations, whether it's with management companies or production companies or third parties. Not only are they doing the vast majority of the labor, they're also the product. And by the time they see money, and a lot of times they're not even exposed to what uh, is being sold on their behalf. They only see their cut. But a lot of times you're talking about 25, 30% is going to that person and the mm -hmm. rest of it is being touched by all these other people. And then when you look at the terms of the contracts that they're in, they're incredibly, incredibly exploitative. I mean, a lot of times 
these contracts will take the whole IP of the person who is create like the channel, mm -hmm. the URL, all of their videos, the branding. And it is staggering how common these kind of relationships are and staggering how common it is for the people doing all the work not to know how cut off they are from the value of their of their work. Yeah. And it's been happening from the beginning because yeah. I remember when networks first started coming around and like I would get emails from these networks and they would like send over their contract and I was like you're essentially saying you want to own me yeah and I didn't know that much then but I knew <laughs> what some of the language was and you know they're really banking off of people not understanding what it is that they're getting into quite frankly also like if you're not seeing a lot of the money that your channel is making. And depending on your management slash production structure, that could very much be the case. You could mm -hmm. be touching a fraction of what your channel is earning. It is very unlikely that you're going to be able to really set yourself up in any meaningful way. Barring a few exceptions as a YouTuber or as an online creator, there aren't a ton. Like, this isn't, you're not going to retire in this job, you know? Or, I mean, <laughs> like, hey, guys, I welcome back to my channel. Like, I don't even know if you'd want to retire this job. But, like, I mean, there really aren't that many options, you yeah. know? And you have to make sure that you're setting yourself up to a place where, like, there's a very good chance. Like, even if you go, like, the agency consultant route, which is often a strong route for people who have a background like this, you're probably going to want to at least have a couple years of savings to make sure that that transition is a good one and that you're able to make it on your own terms and that you can, you know, have a pretty padded out retirement for when that does happen because, you know, the, the faucet's going to turn off eventually. And like, it, there's not, like, this isn't like many other industries where there's a pretty clear path to the end of your professional life. There mm -hmm. isn't one. So you have to prepare and you have, and that means money. And you can't afford to be giving away the majority of what you're earning at, at those prime earning years. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> well, thank you. I think this episode is going to help so many people because I know just sitting here talking to you, I've just been like, oh my gosh, <laughs> but trying to like reel it in and be cool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> so thank you so much, Chelsea, for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been such an honor and pleasure. I just want to say thank you again to Chelsea. This episode felt especially personal for me, and I'm so grateful I got to explore this space with someone who I not only admire, who I think has created something so incredible and so useful, but who is also incredibly thoughtful and informed. And thank you, of course, to everyone out there listening. On next week's episode, I'm going to be reflecting on my own relationship with money, the ways my upbringing shaped my views on money, and how I've spent my adult life trying to unlearn those views. And I want to hear your feedback on this episode, too. You can leave me a voicemail at 551-333-9021 or send a voice note to onesteppodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of this episode. What has your journey with money been like? Has it played a role in your relationships? Also, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because we are brand new babies out here in podcast land. I'm really going to miss when this isn't a new podcast and we're not babies anymore. Like, are we going to turn into like tweens next? No, toddlers. I guess toddlers would be next. Anyway, moving on. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast. Thank you so much to our team, which includes Christina Cleveland, our producer, our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen, and our studio, the glorious YouTube space in New York. This is the last time I'm going to say this. This is the last spiel, I promise. The YouTube space is open to anyone who has 10,000 or more subscribers. It is an awesome space. All of the equipment is free. All you have to do is book it. And I'm saying this because I know so many creators have podcasts or want to start podcasts. And I think this is a really amazing resource. And I'm not being paid by YouTube to say this. This is just a free service that they offer. And I think it's really great. Take care and we'll talk soon. <laughs>